Meanwhile, <laughs> Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid Valley Mutations proudly presents Dime Store Radio Theater's Halloween Spooktacular 2023. Our first installment this week The Veered Circle. Delivering Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. The Weird Circle. In this cave by the restless sea, we are met to call from out of the past stories, strange and weird. Bellkeeper, toll the bell so that all may know we are gathered again in the Weird Circle. favorites are here. Now, smaller in size and ten times sweeter, to keep with the changes in modern community standards. Acme brand Halloween candy, in association with Acme certified dentists. Now, we return you to the Weird Circle, here on Dime Store Radio Theater's Halloween Spooktacular 2023! Gentlemen, gentlemen, please, may I have your attention? Very well. I didn't ask you to come to my humble apartment tonight to endeavor to stun you with my superior knowledge of crime and criminals. I've asked you here only to prove to you that the murders in the Rue Morgue present no great insoluble mystery. Monsieur Dupin, if you think the case is so obvious, tell me, who is the murderer? He will be here shortly, Monsieur le Prefect of Police. Here? Who is it? The murderer here. Gentlemen, I give you my word as a man of honor that he will be here in my apartment at precisely 10 o'clock this evening. How can you be so sure? I have asked him to come. It is exactly 9 o'clock now, gentlemen. And in the hour remaining to us before we meet the murderer... I shall explain to you as simply as I can how I managed to arrive at my conclusion. Yes, do, Monsieur Dupin. I'm always interested in guesswork. Guesswork, my dear fellow? This is not guesswork. No. Now, gentlemen, let us retrace the case. The story begins, if I'm not mistaken, with Madame Lespanay and her daughter Camille on the afternoon of December 16th, 1841. Uh, well, of course, you're correct so far anyway, Dupin. I bow, Monsieur le Prefect. 
Madame Lespanet and her daughter Camille entered the Bank of France at precisely 2.45 in the afternoon to transact important business. Ah, Madame Lespinay, I've been waiting for you. So good of you, Monsieur Lebon. Have you met my daughter, Camille? I don't think I've had the pleasure. How do you do, Mademoiselle? How do you do, Monsieur Lebon? Are you quite sure, Madame Lespinay, that you wish to withdraw all this money at this time? Quite positive. But 4,000 francs is a great deal to keep about one's household, Madame. I'm quite aware of the danger involved, Monsieur Lebon. But if the bank keeps this withdrawal quiet, nobody else need know that I have a sum of money in the house. Well, things do get about, madame. There's no use inviting unnecessary danger. The danger is my problem, Monsieur Lebon. I think we'd better let the matter drop at that. Have you, uh, any protection against possible thievery at home, madame? Ah, uh, no, monsieur, but mamma and I have protection enough. We bolt and lock our doors. It's absolutely impossible for anybody to enter the house unless he should break the door down. But does any male protector live in the house? My husband died many years ago. Madame misunderstands me. I'm only asking these questions for your own good. Two unprotected women living alone in a large house can invite trouble. Don't that you... is our problem. If Madame insists. And I do insist. Very well, Madame. I have the money here. I myself will see you both home to ensure safe delivery. But let me warn you now. The minute you arrive in your home on the Rue Morgue, the Bank of France resigns all future responsibility. We understand, Monsieur Le Bon. We understand perfectly. So, gentlemen, the first step in this little tragedy was completed. Madame Lespanet and her daughter insisted on taking the money home from the bank. Monsieur Lebon drove them in his carriage to their house, the large, bleak house, number 12, Rue Nord. When they arrived there, Monsieur Lebon looked about for the gendarme who was in charge of that particular block. Oh! Oh! May I help you out, Mademoiselle Camille? Thank you, Monsieur Le Bon. Madame? Thank you. Thank you. Is that the gendarme on the corner, the gendarme usually on this block? Not having had any reason to talk to the gendarme, Monsieur Le Bon, I wouldn't know. Yes, I think it is, Monsieur. Gendarme! Gendarme! All this fuss over a little money. Really, you'd think we were incapable of taking care of ourselves. Well, I think Monsieur Le Bon is very thoughtful, Maman. Gendarme! Coming, Monsieur, coming. Do you live on the first floor, Madame Lespinay? On the fourth floor, in the back of the house. I own this house, and I've shut up all the other rooms. You mean this entire house is unoccupied you except for... You called me, monsieur. Yes, I did. I want you to keep a special watch on this house for the next week or so. Madame Lespinay and her daughter will have a considerable amount of money in the house. I will watch the house like a watchdog. You would be better off if you did it like a man. Then you'd use your head instead of your feet. Monsieur! What is your name, gendarme? Gendarme Isidore Musée. Very well. Gendarme Isidore Musée. I leave these ladies in your care. You needn't worry about a thing, mademoiselle. And madame. I'm sure we won't. That is, as long as you don't spread the news around the neighborhood that we've got 4,000 francs hidden here in the house. Who, me, madame? I am the law, and your secret is safe with me. <laughs> Come along, Mama. I'm getting hungry. Yes, dear. Thank you so much for all you've done, Monsieur Le Bon. It is nothing, mademoiselle, nothing at all. Just a courtesy extended by the Bank of France. I'll keep good watch, be assured of that. I'll keep very good watch. 
Gentlemen, gentlemen, let us proceed to the next event. Gendarme Isidore Musée kept a very good watch on number 12 Rue Morgue. At 11 o'clock the evening of the tragedy, he strolled into the shop two doors away from number 12 to buy a pouch of tobacco and to chat with his very good friend Pierre Moreau, a tiny man known as the neighborhood gossip. Uh, good evening, uh, good evening, good evening, friend Isidore, good evening. Uh, evening. I've been waiting for you, yes, I've been waiting for you. You usually drop in at nine o'clock. And I said to myself, as I sat here waiting for you, I said, uh, where's my good friend Isidore? It's been a busy evening this evening. That's what I said to myself. If Isidore doesn't drop in to buy his usual box of tobacco, he's busy. There must be big news abroad, but then <laughs> how could there be big news abroad on this block? That's what I said. You were wrong, Pierre. Very wrong. Wrong, eh? Uh, there is big news. Thievery? No. Uh, murder? No. Well, then, <laughs> I give up. It's a secret. Secret. What could be a secret? Somebody got married. That's no secret. Somebody died. That's no secret either. A child is ill, a contagious disease, an epidemic, or Paris will be infected? No. Well, I can't guess. If you promise not to tell a soul... Oh, not a soul. Well, Madame Lespinier... Yes? ...and her daughter Camille... ...have withdrawn 4,000 francs from the bank today... And have it hidden in the house somewhere. No. And I must stand on guard. Oh, naturally, naturally. But don't tell a soul. No, not a soul. On my honor, not a single soul, Isidore. My word of honor, I swear it now. And so, by midnight, gentlemen, the entire neighborhood in the Rue Morgue was buzzing. 4,000 francs in the Lespinay household. I hear it was 10,000. Two women all alone. Imagine it. 20,000 francs. I wonder where... And all that jewelry must be a veritable fortune hidden away. Do you know that they say she's got money hidden in every corner of the house? Imagine almost a million francs in that house. I always knew there was something strange about those two women living all alone in a house like that. And in the rear, fourth floor... Yes, sitting in the bedroom of the fourth floor rear. But while the neighborhood was busy gossiping and chattering, Mademoiselle Camille and her mother were completely unaware of the commotion they had caused. It was almost three in the morning. Camille had just finished undressing, and her mother was sitting in front of the mirror, brushing her hair so that they didn't notice the window opening in back of them. so tired, Mama. Poor Camille. It's been a very busy day. You know, I thought that Monsieur Le Bon was very nice. He seems fairly affable. Oh, Mama, fairly affable. I thought he was perfectly charming. So concerned over us. <laughs> no man ever gets that concerned over me. Must have been you, darling. <laughs> All men see. <laughs> Mama! Stay calm, Camille. Don't Mama, move. he's got a razor in his hand. Don't move, Camille. Mama, quick. Let's hide. He's coming closer. Where, Camille? Where shall we go? Into the closet, Mama. Oh, quickly, Mama, into the closet. Close the door. Mama, he'll break the door down. He'll break the door down, Mama. Watch out, Camille. He'll be breaking it down. Help me, Mama. Help me. <laughs> 
Red Circle is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Halloween Candy. You've been seeing it on the shelves at your local grocer since the last day of school. So why not finally pick up a bag of Acme Brand Halloween Candy? Where bulk matters more than quality. Now, we return you to The Weird Circle and Dime Store Radio Theater's Halloween Spooktacular 2023! Quite right, gentlemen. Simply ghastly. We fully realize that this is a horrible atrocity, but we must remain factual. While all this was going on on the fourth floor of number 12, Rue Morgue, the gendarme Isidore Musée, the little tobacconist Pierre Moreau, Monsieur Lebon, who, strangely enough, was in the neighborhood at that very moment, and a passerby, a sailor, all four were attracted by the screams of the two women and immediately tried to break into number 12, Rue uh-huh. Morgue. Now stand back, everybody, while I break the door down. Stand back. This is the gendarme's job. Break it down, Isidore. Break it down. Look up. Follow me, everybody. Up these stairs to the fourth floor. Stand right behind you, Isidore. Right behind you. Now on the next flight. Keep going. Wait a minute, wait. Wait. Listen to that. He's speaking Italian. No, it's Russian, Isidore. No, Italian, Pierre. I think it's Polish. How would you know Polish, Monsieur Lebon? Have you ever heard Polish spoken? No, no, but... Listen again. I think it's Dutch speaking Dutch. Polish, He's stopped speaking, hasn't he? Yes. Probably escaped. Yes, probably. I wonder. Try the door. Uh, Can you open it, Isidore? No. It's locked. I I think we're too late. I'm sure of it, sailor. I warned you about this gendarme. Well, let's let's break the door down. One. Two. Oh, three. Look. Look. What? Oh, the entire room is wrecked. Just exactly as if a maniac had torn up the place. The bed's torn apart. Yes. I've sailed the seven seas, but I've never seen a place look like this in my entire life. Monsieur Le Bon, where are Mademoiselle Camille and, and her mother? I don't know. They're not in here. Look. Where? They're in the fireplace. Oh. It's Mademoiselle Camille. Dead. Yes. Dead. Dead. Poor girl. Here, help me, somebody. Help me lift her up. Look. Look out this window. The old woman is lying in the courtyard below. The sailor's right. Absolutely right. She's lying in the courtyard below, dead as a dead fish. Oh, probably twice as dead. Somebody is guilty of this. Somebody. And as a member of the Paris police, I mean to find out who that guilty person is. Yes, gentlemen. 
Isidore Musée gendarme swore up and down that he would find the murderer. Well, at four o'clock that morning, I was awakened from a sound sleep and called to number 12 Rue Morgue to examine the evidence. Monsieur le gendarme Musée was running around the room destroying the evidence, or at least what little evidence there was, as fast as he unearthed it. The three gentlemen who had been there with him were still waiting round out of a combined feeling of horror and curiosity. The sailor, whose name escaped me, was sitting on what was left of a bed, staring blankly around the room. Monsieur Pierre Moreau, the tobacconist, was watching Isidore Musée, the gendarme, play detective. He played it badly. And Monsieur Le Bon was the picture of dejection. I entered the room and gazed about while Isidore supplied me with all the facts in the case, at least from his point of view. And, and that is exactly what happened, Monsieur Dupin. Very interesting, Monsieur Isidore Musée. And uh, now, gentlemen, I wish to ask just a few questions. Uh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, now, all of you seem to think you heard the voice of the murderer. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, we did definitely. No doubt about it. And uh, you, Monsieur Isidore Musée, you are positive that the murderer is an Italian? Positive, Monsieur Dupin. Absolutely positive. I could tell by his, uh, his intonation. Hmm? Do you speak Italian? Oh, no. Definitely not. Have you ever heard Italian spoken? No, monsieur, never. But I imagine... Yes? You imagine what? Oh, I imagine it would sound like that. I see. And uh, you, monsieur Le Bon, you said it was Polish. Definitely Polish, without a doubt. I judge you have lived in Poland a long time yet? No, no, but I heard Polish spoken once. Once? Yes. That makes you an excellent judge of the Polish language. Uh, how about you, Monsieur Pierre Moreau? What language did you say it was? Uh, Russian, I thought, uh, but that's only a guess, since I admit, and I admit it very freely, I'm not a man to hedge. Uh, I've never heard a word of Russian in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought so. And how about you, Sarah? I, I thought it was Dutch. I don't speak the Dutch language, but I have heard a considerable amount of Dutch spoken when I was in Holland eight years ago. Eight Years ago. Hmm? I, uh, I don't mean to make a suggestion, Monsieur Dupin, but Monsieur Lavant was the only man beside myself who knew about the money being kept in this house. What are you insinuating, Monsieur Musée? Insinuating? <laughs> I'm an officer of the law, and I think it was very peculiar that you should just happen to be in this neighborhood at three o'clock in the morning. Don't you live in this neighborhood, Monsieur Lebon? No, but I've good reason to be here. Oh, so? Suppose you tell us. Well, I was worried about Mademoiselle Camille. I was rather attracted to the young lady. And, well, I had a feeling that there would be trouble over the money. Well, I was in the corner cafe having some tea until about ten minutes before the murder occurred. And then you strolled by the house on your way home, correct? Quite correct. Now, my tobacco store is open all night. All tobacco stores are open all night, Monsieur Pierre Moreau. I was just walking by. I didn't steal the money. But naturally, nobody stole the money. It's in the safe behind this wall. Huh? Are you positive, Monsieur Dupin? Perfectly obvious that the money hasn't been touched. These murders were far too cruel to be instigated by man's greedy desire for financial reward. Here, let me open the safe and show you. I uh, happen to know an interesting combination that will open any safe. <laughs> I should have been a thief. So, there. That ought to open it. Oh, it did. 
Naturally. Now, look. There's the 4,000 francs, safe and snug as a 4,000 franc group of notes should be. Well, perhaps Monsieur Lebon was interrupted in the midst of his thievery. Perhaps he, he, he didn't have time to finish. Well, nonsense. Monsieur Lebon was with you when you walked up the stairs. Well, an accomplice, perhaps. No, 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 Monsieur Isidore Musée. Let me show you something. Look at the fingerprints on this girl's neck. Very strong, heavy prints. And very large, too. Why, yes. The murderer must have been a giant. His hand must have been twice as large as mine, and I have a large hand as hands could. Yes, yes. The murderer was a giant. A giant with extraordinary strength. Gentlemen, I think now I have sufficient clues. Uh, look at this window. It's, it's just a window. Yes, just a window with a cord on it. A broken piece of cord. Clue number one. Clue number two. Look. Look at the dead girl's hand. Huh? Why? She has some hair clutched in her hand. Quite correct. And with this cord and this hair, I can find the murderer. Gentlemen, go home. Go home, get a good night's sleep, and I'll hand the murderer over to the prefect of police very soon. Monsieur Dupin, don't forget to mention that I helped you. I'm, I'm due for promotion soon. And so, messieurs, that is the story. And you have the fact. A piece of cord and some hair. The condition of the room, the strength of the murderer, the passion of the deed, the lack of motivation should all suggest to you the very same thing it suggested to me. Monsieur Dupin, you are talking in circles. Circles? So? You mean to say you still don't know who the murderer is? No, of course I don't know. And frankly, Monsieur Dupin, I don't think you know either. <laughs> really, gentlemen. Really, gentlemen, you, you amaze me. Here. Here, Monsieur le Prefect. Examine this piece of cord, if you will. What do you make out of it? A uh, piece of cord, yes. Uh, well, let me see. Well, it's a piece of... Well, nothing except that, uh, well, it's it's been torn. Yes, it's been torn. Now, yes. try to tear it yourself. Well, try to tear it. Well, I couldn't. It, it, it's a very, very strong cord. Ah. Notice anything else? Yes, now that I look at it, it's got a very unusual knot in it. Uh, but what does an unusual knot prove? You will see what I mean presently. It's the first stroke of ten o'clock. Any minute now, gentlemen, the murderer will enter this room. Uh, may I please ask you to extinguish all the candles in the room, all except one? Oh, uh, why, uh, Monsieur Dupin, we'll all be murdered. Which would be no great tragedy, but I, I wouldn't worry if I were you. Well, as you say, Monsieur Dupin, uh, extinguish the candles, gentlemen. Yes. Now we are in semi-darkness. That is fine. Listen, gentlemen, the downstairs door to my pension has opened and closed. The murderer is now downstairs. He is walking up the stairs. Now listen. Yes, listen. For the love of heaven. Quiet, quiet. He is coming closer. Gentlemen, are you ready to grab him when he enters? Yes, monsieur. That is good, good. He is standing outside my door now, Monsieur Le Prefect. 
Ready, gentlemen? Yes. yes. Come in. Grab him. Oh, let me go. Let me go. There you are. So it is you, sailor. Uh, help the sailor to sit down. Uh, it was a trap, huh? Yeah, but this sailor doesn't look strong enough to commit these murders. Let me go! Let me go! Don't Let me go, I say! Please, please, please don't struggle. <laughs> you see, sailor, Monsieur le Prefect cannot arrest you for the murder because although you are responsible for the crimes, you are not guilty. I am not guilty. I am not. I, I couldn't help. Of course you couldn't. Gentlemen... It must be obvious to you now that no man murdered these two women. The only creature able to do it would be a Bornese orangutan. Orangutan? What? I matched these hairs I found in the dead woman's hand, and of course they belong to just such a creature. An orangutan. Yes. Yes, Monsieur Dupin is right. But tell me, how is uh, this sailor involved? I own the animal. Dupin put an ad in the paper saying my orangutan was captured. Oh, that's why I'm here, to claim it. But didn't you realize that Monsieur Dupin knew that the murder was an orangutan? No. No, I... I didn't think anyone could solve the murders. But I did know that whoever put the ad in the paper knew that I was the owner of the animal and that he was keeping what he thought was a perfectly innocent animal. You see, I addressed my ad personally to this sailor. This piece of cord told me a sailor owned it. There was a sailor's knot in the cord, and the knot was peculiar to those tied on Maltese vessels. Therefore, when I put the ad in the paper, I asked the sailor from the Maltese vessel, uh, I checked on the name of the vessel from the sailing data in the paper, to come and get the beast. Well, naturally, I I came to pick him up. Ah, now I see. Uh, one question I must ask, sailor. How did the orangutan get hold of a razor, and uh, how did he manage to escape? I... I had the animal locked in my quarters. I... I captured him in Malta and brought him to this country to sell to the zoo. They're, they're very smart, you know. For last night, when I entered my room, he was trying to shave with my razor. When I tried to chain him up, he escaped. He ran out into the streets, saw the light in number 12, Rue Log, climbed up the lightning rod to the ladies' apartments. Well... You know the rest. Indeed we do. Well, gentlemen, if you have any other problems you wish settled, call on me. Just call on Monsieur Auguste Dupin. Incidentally, if you'd like to see the orangutan, you'll find it safely locked up in the zoo. have been bringing you the Veard Circle. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Halloween Candy. Worried that you might find pieces of Acme Brand Halloween Candy for months, possibly years after trick-or-treating has ended in your neighborhood? Never fear. Acme Brand Halloween Candy is shelf-stable for up to 16 years. You can't call it stale, it's already called Acme. We now return you to the conclusion of The Weird Circle here on Dime Store Radio Theater's Halloween Spooktacular 2023. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought you 
Once again, next time, for another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. And now, for our second installment this week, we bring you The Price of Fear, with The Man Who Hated Scenes. The Price of Fear, brought to you by Vincent Price. The Price of Fear is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Halloween Costumes. We know kids are looking for something new and exciting to wear out with their friends on Halloween night. Something easily recognizable when they go door to door. That's why the Acme collection this year includes the costumes kids crave. Henry Fonda, Betty Davis, the dashing Cary Grant, and Catherine Hepburn. Yes, your children will swoon over Acme's 1930s Halloween collection. Acme brand Halloween costumes. We've got you covered. And now, back to The Price of Fear. Train trips fascinate me. How about you? If the answer is yes... Then this story, which I have chosen to call The Man Who Hated Scenes, might well appeal to you. Indeed, for some of you listening, even the notion of making a long train journey across the United States will conjure up a world of limitless possibilities. The world seems yours for the asking. Right from that first whistle blow... Right from the first shudder as the giant locomotive grips the tracks and pulls its human cargo away from the commonplace and the familiar towards the romantic and the unknown. Others of you, of course, might prefer to regard such a journey as simply a a respite, a period of temporary seclusion, a chance to simply sit and think. My own inclinations vary, and, I suspect, come somewhere in between. 
In any event, be it in the diner of a train speeding across the States or in the kitchen of my own home, I have always considered conversation at breakfast as something of a chore. And so it was, as I watched the little man coming towards me, my feelings were a mixture of resentment and dismay. His voice proved as tentative and deferential as his general demeanor. You, um, you won't mind if I share your table? The fact that the rest of the diner was still completely empty and the stranger seemed perfectly prepared for me to refuse ultimately made no difference to my polite reply. Will you? Oh, no, please do. I'd be glad for the company. Oh, many thanks. Insomnia, don't you know? I've been a martyr to it all my life. Oh, I'm sorry mm. about that. But still, it's nice to know I'm not going to be the only one coming in for breakfast this early. Oh? Yes, when I came in a few minutes ago, the dining car attendant looked as though he'd just got out of his pajamas <laughs> and could certainly see no reason why I wasn't still in mine. But he... he wasn't angry, was he? Well, let's just say not your usual service with a smile. I see. You, uh, you must forgive my asking... It's just that I could perfectly well come back later if it were more convenient for them. Well, there's no point in making a scene, is there? I do so hate scenes. He glanced nervously away as the same sleepy waiter approached us from the service area. He gave his order in an apologetic, hardly audible voice. Just coffee and lightly scrambled eggs, please. Are you going all the way to New York? Hmm? Oh, much further, much further. I'm travelling on the QE2. We embark on Thursday. Oh, home to England, then? Oh, no, no, not for a long time yet. Uh, Cherbourg first, then the Sun, the Riviera, perhaps, Italy, the Greek islands. I haven't made up my mind. Oh, I do envy you. Then you shouldn't. No? No, it's just a case of doctor's orders... My nerves, you know. It's any kind of excitement to be avoided at all costs. Yes. Yes, I do understand. I think you really do. For some unknown reason, I'm, I'm sure you do. So, my, my friend, you can imagine the kind of state I got myself into when I discovered my wife was being unfaithful to me, can't you? Your... your wife? Uh, Marilyn. So beautiful, so very, very beautiful. Oh, but perhaps you'd care to judge for yourself. I just happened to have it. It's only a snapshot, but it doesn't do her justice, really. But, oh, yes, here, here we are. It was taken at the side of the pool, don't you know? Our pool. It's very impressive. <laughs> Marilyn loved that pool. I'd accepted and studied the photograph. The sleepy waiter had returned and was grudgingly serving my companions breakfast. Yes, the girl was certainly beautiful. There was no denying that fact. Even though the photographer had caught her just on the point of emerging from the pool, her charms were not only obvious, but a trifle too obvious. The high diving board framed her head. It reminded me somewhat disconcertingly of a gallows. 
I ordered scrambled eggs, didn't I? What? Yes. Yes, I'm sure you did, but they've brought you fried. So bad for the digestion, don't you know? Oh, well, these things are sent to try us. Oh, nothing of the kind. I'll ring for the service. No, no, please don't. I do so hate scenes, you see. Please. Well, just as you wish. Thank you. I suppose it's fortunate for me. I've never been short of money. It really is a wonderful insulator, old man. It protects me from all kinds of anxieties the average man can't avoid. It's probably why I've never objected when I've been overcharged or anything like that. Far easier to pay up. Remain calm. Hmm? Mm. You, uh, you were telling me about your, your wife. Marilyn. Oh, yes. Beautiful. So beautiful. The most beautiful creature I've ever seen. Or I'm ever likely to see. I, I thought so right from the very beginning. Where was that? Mm -hmm. It was at a resort in Florida. She was a swimmer before our marriage. Almost made the Olympic team. Did she really? Yes, really. Anyway, she was doing some exhibition dives from the high board into the hotel pool. She was wearing a white bathing suit. I remember seeing her poised high above me. She seemed a positive... Goddess incarnate. Diana turned mermaid instead of huntress. Uh, does that um, sound f fanciful? No. No, not at all. I didn't think it would. To you? I, I never thought I was in with much of a chance, though. She was a, a good 20 years younger and always in the company of half a dozen bronzed Apollos. But, well, we just seemed to hit it off right from the start. The difference in age didn't seem to matter. <laughs> uh, a case of mind over matter. I, I suppose you could put it like that. In any event, within a month, Marilyn and I became husband and wife and were off on our honeymoon. We were so very happy. And afterwards you, you returned home? Home? It's a, it's a big Spanish type of place just outside Santa Barbara. A truly beautiful spot. I don't think I ever wanted to leave that house ever again. It gave me the seclusion and peace my nerves required. I had everything I ever wanted. Mm. And, uh, Marilyn? Oh, for a long time she loved the place too. We'd splash about in our pool every day and often I'd just lie in the sun and watch her diving. And... <laughs> sometimes... Yes? Sometimes we'd send the servants away for the day and... If you'll pardon the expression, we'd swim in the nude. <laughs> well, it was genuinely idyllic, my friend. In an age when all the graciousness seems to have gone out of life. Idyllic. So much so that when it finally came, Marilyn's outburst took me completely by surprise. What's so surprising about it, for God's sake? And you needn't think I'm so dumb as to not realize what you're getting out of this setup either. Getting out of getting, this setup? Getting, yes. This place, miles from anywhere, perched on the edge of nowhere. Well, it exactly suits your ends, doesn't it? I thought you liked the house. A rich, eccentric, middle-aged recluse, comfortably ensconced in his 20-bedroomed ivory tower. I've always felt you shared my preference for the solitary life. But not the godforsaken. I don't understand what you're getting at, Marilyn. Don't you? 
Really? For a gentleman of your intelligence and breeding, I should have thought it altogether too obvious. However, I'll tell you. It's quite simple. <laughs> Madeline, dear, do you think you ought to drink so much? You didn't have the guts to stay on here and go it completely alone. So, for once in his life, one hermit ventured forth. He took a little trip into the big outside world with the deliberate intention of trapping a little spouse to keep him company. I've never thought of our marriage as a trap. Ego being what it is, I'm damn sure you haven't. <sighs> but take it from me, it was just an arrangement right from the start. An arrangement no. to suit your own ends. I've always tried to put your happiness first. Huh. Happiness? That's a word from the past. But I... Given you everything you've ever asked for, everything. I'll grant you the bait was acceptable enough at first. Bait? Of the very finest quality, there's no denying, but bait, Harry. You made the whole arrangement seem irresistible, didn't you? But I... The world was to be our oyster, remember? New places, new faces, forever and ever, world without end, amen. Oh, you really had me believing it, too. Right up to the end of the honeymoon, you actually had me believing it. And afterwards? Well, the honeymoon was over, wasn't it? So was the new faces, new places routine. And in its place, this. A cage, damn you. Oh, well up to the standard you taught me to expect. I'm not denying, but a cage for all that. Madeline... I love you, right from that first moment. You knew that you wanted me, so you wooed me and you won me. You moved me into your millionaire's Alcatraz and then you throw away the keys. I still love you. Oh, maybe you do. Enough to go back? Back where? To where the arrangement started going wrong. To our original arrangement, Harry. New places, new faces, forever and ever, world without end. It is not an arrangement. It never has been. It still is. And shall I tell you something else? It's never going to be anything more, Harry. <laughs> poor Harry. Poor, poor Harry. <laughs> <laughs> of Fear is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Midrali Mutations. <laughs> and this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Halloween Costumes. With a variety of classic costumes for the kiddos, you might think Acme has forgotten someone else around the house. But that's not true. Because with an array of This Is My Halloween Costume t-shirts, and two different hobo costumes, we have everything Dad needs this year. Acme brand Halloween costumes. We've got you covered. And now, we return you to The Price of Fear. Have some more coffee. Oh, thank you. So, uh, she got her own way, then? New places, new faces. If it had been in my power, she would have... She would have got her way. If it had been in my power, I'd have given her anything. 
Knowing what a person is doesn't necessarily mean you stop loving them, does it? No, I suppose not. So, um, you left the house? Hmm? Oh, no. No, it never came to that. Oh, it was, it, it was what Marilyn had insisted upon and what I'd agreed to. A really long trip abroad. A chance for us to find each other again. Extraordinary how absolute naivety has a charm of its own. But as things turned out, it simply wasn't to be. Oh? Well, on the eve of our departure, I was taken ill. Desperately ill. As a, as a result of the quarrel? Well, my doctor called it acute emotional stress. You, you see, I've never been able to stand scenes of any kind, and in this case, well, my only defence was a period of total mental withdrawal, a self-inflicted coma, if you like. It went on for a long time, over a month. And then? It refused to go on any longer. Did... well... Did Marilyn stand by you? Marilyn? Ah, yes. Marilyn. <sighs> Marilyn? 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 <sighs> Marilyn! It's all right. I'm here. I'm here. <sighs> oh, dear God. <sighs> Easy now. You've been ill, Harry. Very ill. Yes. Yes, I, I have been ill, haven't I? I'm so sorry, Marilyn. Oh, shush, shush. The only important so thing now is that you get well again. The doctor's been very worried for you. And you? Did you worry for me too, Marilyn? Oh, yes. I worried. Oh, thank you. Thank you for worrying. Oh, shh. No. No, you were quite right. I, I'd been selfish and thoughtless, thinking only of myself. But I'll... I'll make it up to you. You'll see, I'll, I'll make it all up to you. Of course you will. By simply getting well again. Yes, that's it. Well again. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then we'll make that long trip together, eh? Just the two of us, just, just as we've planned to do before. No. Pardon? There's not going to be any trip, Harry. Not just yet. Not for a long, long time. But I thought that was what you, you, you wanted. It was. Well? And then you became sick. And I realized I wanted something else much more. I, I wanted you to get well again. So that we could always be together. Together here, Harry. I wanted this place for just the two of us. I wanted to look after you and care for you here in our own home, Harry. And I decided that the most important thing in the world for me was to make it into a real home. Not some kind of show place. What? Not some kind of domestic hotel either, where everything gets done for you at the press of a button. I'm, I'm not sure I understand. But... It's perfectly simple. I got rid of the servants, Henry. Servants? You... We never really needed them. Don't you see? It was they that came between us, Harry. Our only real happiness came when we were allowed to be alone together. But how are we going to manage it without the... Easily, easily. I've already arranged it all and it's working wonderfully. A woman comes up from town every morning to take care of the heavy work. 
I can get anything we need by making a phone call and having it delivered. Well, what more do we need? What more can we ask, huh? Nothing, my love. Nothing. Just the two of us. Just the two of you. And tell me, did it work out like that? No. No, not quite like that. Well, how? As the weeks went by and I got steadily stronger, Marilyn thought the occasional change of scene might speed my recovery. Nothing too far afield, mind you, nothing too taxing, just a little jaunt along the coast, the odd picnic in the hills. Well, my nerves being what they are, I've never felt competent enough to drive myself, and Marilyn didn't really feel up to it. We had got rid of my old chauffeur, along with the rest of the staff, and so... So you engaged another one? Marilyn engaged one. His name was Charles. I had no objection to her choice. My own newfound happiness was such that I was scarcely aware of him. What was he like? Charles? Mm. Oh, he was in his mid-twenties, I suppose. I dare say handsome, in an obvious sort of way. But, as I say, I was, I was hardly aware. Not until that night. The night when... Oh, oh my God. Dear God. God, that night is still with me. I, I woke up with a start from a, a very deep sleep. Hmm. Marilyn had taken care to give me my usual quota of sleeping pills, but for some reason on this particular night, they hadn't done the trick. Perhaps it was meant... Well, for several minutes I just lay there, perspiring heavily, getting my bearings, aware only of the ticking of the clock. Then I called out for Marilyn. Yes, I, I didn't want to disturb her, but I, I needed another sedative badly. But when she didn't answer, I, I, I got up and went to her room. Sh she wasn't there. At first I thought she must have got up for something too, until... I saw her bed hadn't been slept in. It was almost four o'clock in the morning. I was a little alarmed, so I, I, I began to look for her. M Marilyn? Marilyn? It wasn't until I reached the downstairs living room, which opens onto the patio, that I heard voices. <laughs> I opened the patio doors. The voices were clearer now. My wife and our chauffeur, together at the pool. I understood at once. It was pitch black, and they'd taken the precaution of not turning on the pool light. But I could hear them laughing and talking in low, intimate voices. I heard them climb the steps to the high board and dive together into the deep water.
I stood there, heartsick. The effort to simply hold on to myself was unbearable. My first instinct had been to rush out and confront them, but I, I couldn't bear the thought of such a scene. So instead, I, I waited until they eventually left the pool. They lay together in each other's arms, not ten feet from where I stood. I... listened. Why did you ever leave me? Oh, I don't know. I did then. At the time, it seemed the only possible answer. But I know I never stopped loving you, not for a single second. Which, in a funny way, is why I had to leave you in the first place. That doesn't make sense. Let's just say, an instinct, shall we? Instinct? Yeah. And the kind of life we were living together must one day have killed that love. It wasn't so bad. Wasn't it? Diving exhibitions at second-rate summer resorts, the odd gala. Hardly enough to keep body and soul alive. Endless drag from one dreary hotel room to the next. So you sold out and settled for this instead. Oh. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound like that. I settled for both of us, Chuck. Oh, but you still don't know whether to believe that or not, do you? To believe that I only ever wanted this for us. All along. I don't know what to believe. <laughs> when I'm lying here with you like this... Well, it's just a sharing you with him, I suppose. Seeing you together, catching the odd, unexpected glimpse of you both in that damn driving mirror. Oh. Seeing him look at you that way, as though you were really his. Seeing him reach out to touch you. Chuck. Seeing you smile back. Seeing you return the touch. Please but don't. worst of all, knowing that though you're lying here with me now, in a little while you'll be gone. Because there's still some part of you that belongs to him. Not belongs. It never has. It never can. It, it never will. I wish I could be sure of that. He's a sick man, Chuck. Sicker than he even suspects. A year, two years, a little longer, maybe. But it's not so important, is it? We can wait. Because we know that one day there's only going to be us, Chuck. All this and us. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. <laughs> Hold me. Hold me close. What did you do? Do? Mm. Oh, the conventional thing, I'm afraid. The next day, I engaged a firm of detectives. To make inquiries about Charles. Mm. They only told me what I more or less knew already, that he was a swimmer who teamed up with Marilyn to do exhibition diving the summer before I met her. The rest was obvious. When I became ill, she had sent for him to solace her loneliness, shall we say. Then, as I grew better, she stumbled on the idea of employing him as our chauffeur. You can understand my dilemma. Yes, yes, I, I am beginning to. I was just recovering from a serious nervous illness, a breakdown. A scene, a quarrel would undo the weeks of convalescence. Now, of all times, it was impossible for me to have it out with Marilyn, to send Charles packing to do what any other man would have done instantly. It was a weakness, but I couldn't overcome it. So? I dissembled. I pretended I knew nothing. I waited. Gina's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. <laughs> 
have been bringing you the price of fear. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Halloween Costumes. 15% fewer slutty costumes with 85% more empowering ones. Acme Brand Halloween Costumes. Or for the rest of the year, too. We don't judge. And now, prepare yourselves for the conclusion of The Price of Fear. I racked my brains for some way of letting Madeline know that I knew, and yet avoiding that inevitable scene. Well, did you eventually find a way? Oh, yes. I saw how it could be done, quietly, without any fuss. Tell me about it. Oh. Well, Marilyn wanted to go to the movies in Santa Barbara. I declined, but said Charles should drive her, as I didn't like her to be out on her own at night. She... she saw me to bed and watched me ostensibly taking my sleeping tablets. I heard the car drive away and imagined handsome Charles, Chuck, sitting confidently beside her at the wheel. After a while, I I got up. I had plenty of time. Plenty of time for what? To arrange the hint. The hint that would let them know when they got back that I was fully aware of what was happening between them. Oh, go on. It was well after midnight when they got back. Very dark. A hot, sultry night. Just the night for a swim. Marilyn didn't even come up to her room but went with Charles directly to his. And a few minutes later I heard them laughing softly as they came out and went towards the pool. It was inky dark. But I knew they were climbing the diving tower. The high board creaked as they stepped out onto it and creaked again sharply as each one dived off into the pool. Marilyn first, then Charles right behind her. Their little game they enjoyed so much. It was too dark to see a foot in front of you, but of course to swimmers of their skill it made no difference. In fact, I rather imagine it added to their fun. And uh, your hint, did it work? I I, I mean, did it break up the affair? Oh, yes. It broke up all right. The affair ended that very night. A truly effective hint, when I finally thought of it. You see, my friend, that evening, as soon as they had left the house, I opened each of the four valves and drained all the water out of the swimming pool. The man watched me, waited. I could think of nothing to say. After what seemed an eternity of silence between us, the train entered a tunnel. It was like the fall of a curtain.
That was Vincent Price, bringing you the last in this series, The Price of Fear. Also starring in The Man Who Hated Scenes was Peter Cushing with Diana Olson and Steve Preston. The Man Who Hated Scenes was first recounted by Robert Arthur, dramatized by William Ingram, and produced by John Dias. Another exciting edition of Dime Store Revelations. Ooh, sorry about that. <clears throat> A little rusty, but we're getting back into the swing of things. And this is the show within a show where we talk about the show that we've been showing. No, uh, listening to, that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a long story. But uh, let's say hello to uh, our guests out there who uh, have been joining us for a, a wonderful evening. Uh, we've got Web Hamster Henry, Charles, of course, Imaginos. Thank you, thank you. Imaginos actually, I think, initially suggested certain Price of Fear selections. And it has now become a regular feature on this program. At least for the holidays, anyway. Uh, and let's see who else is out there. WR, thank you, thank you. Mr. Fab, of course. Yes, I have risen from the crypt. Oh, the. It is very terrible. Oh, I have a headache. And uh, let's see. Oh, uh, yeah, Quetzo. Uh, hello, Quetzo. Nice to see you in the chat. And, uh,. Yes, uh, of course, Heather Z. Thank you so much for popping in. Uh, it is always a, um, a, a pleasure to have uh, plenty of folks uh, joining us for the, uh, the Dime Store Revelations. Now, I, I mentioned this in the chat, but uh, all uh, month long we have for uh, the Weird Circle Edgar Allan Poe short stories. And what is interesting about the Weird Circle is that they do not shy away from rewriting in, in some cases, quite extensively, uh, stories to fit their purposes. <laughs> uh, to the point where when we get to uh, the Telltale Heart, um, it, there are many elements to it that are not in the original story. Uh, but they run with it, and they have fun with it, I guess, is uh, how that goes. So, What can you do? And then in the Price of Fear slot, I thought, well, you know, this year, why don't I do all stories where Vincent himself is a character in the story? And, and I think in this case, it, he's the least of the characters that he will play. Uh, in, in fact, last uh, week, he was an active participant who ended up uh, murdering a cat. Um, but uh, this week, he's just listening um, on a train in a scary kind of context and... Uh, well, we'll see where he goes next. Vincent kind of just gets around when it comes to these Price of Fear episodes, and so we uh, we never know where he's going to pop up next. 
Now, I think I mentioned this last week, but for hour two, at least for the first few weeks here, um, I'm running some features that uh, the sound quality is not great. And so I have used some sound enhancement tools more than I usually use. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> there's some, what can I say? People, some, some of them have been touted as online AI tools. I, I, they're just sound enhancement as near as I can figure. Um, but... That doesn't mean uh, that uh, it isn't unusual, because, uh, yeah, I, I, I've tried my best to kind of clean them up beyond the normal um, EQing that I do. But Quiet Please is a famously poor quality program um, that uh, we have them all on transcription discs uh, in some form. Well, not all of them, but many of them. And so the ones that we do have, we can't hear very well. So I've used a lot of cleanup tools on those to try to make them uh, sound better for... Uh, our um for our, our listening experience and then i dug up a few kind of shorties as well uh the black chapel and uh i think the black castle which were just rebrandings of the same story i think those are uh, also uh good examples of some unusual scary seasonal radio that is perfect for this time of year but because we don't have a series of them we only have two episodes in this case uh, it's kind of under-listened and uh, unfortunately under-archived in a, in a good way. So uh, I've done a little bit of enhancement on the Black Chapel as well. And then, of course, all throughout the uh, month, I am running a Boris Karloff documentary to kind of help season the, the holiday in, in a, a, a wonderful way. Um, Yes, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price together. Yeah, that is a very cool episode, not just for kind of like the eerie tone that it sets, but uh, um, that pairing for radio. Yeah, they should have done more. Yeah, pardon everyone, I'm a little under the weather trying to uh, hang in there as best I can. Why don't I get back into some radio and uh, let the body heal? It's a Dime Store Radio Theater here on Sheena's Jungle Room, WFMU. And it's uh, part of our Hellraiser, so please scroll to the top of the page and make a donation if you can. It helps keep the radio flowing, and it helps uh, keep, uh, well, everybody a little bit happier. Now, where were we? Oh, yes, on the radio. Until next time, be seeing you. When Boris Karloff accepted the role of the monster in Frankenstein, little did the 43-year-old actor realize the impact the film would have on his life and on the audience. When Frankenstein was first released, it was as gigantic uh, an onslaught as like E.T. Nothing had ever been seen like it. Throw the switches. Boris Karloff, the gentle monster. A Biography Channel documentary, part two. The scene in which the monster is brought to life remains one of the most unforgettable moments in motion picture history. We first see this uh, scarred hand and, and Cole and Clive saying, it, it's moving. It's moving. It's alive. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. I thought it was just the the greatest picturization of uh, fantasy and horror that I had I had ever seen. Karloff brought a real pathos to it. 
There's the sequence which uh, unfortunately was excised from the film for many, many years, where the monster's down by the lake with the, the little girl. See how mine flows? She shows him a, a little game that she can take a, a daisy and throw it in the, in the lake and it floats and he likes that. But eventually they run out of daisies and he's, you know, more, more, this is fun. And uh, so you sort of see a gleam in his eye, well, well, wait a minute, Daisy's float, uh, I guess little girls float. No, you're hurting me! No! Boris Karloff himself had kind of a negative reaction to that scene. He felt that it made him appear rather monstrous, but I don't see any evil intent at all. He doesn't do it out of uh, malice, evil, anything of that nature, just out of naivete. I became aware of the humanity of somebody who was deformed or uh, a, a creature. And I think probably that was the, the most moving thing about Frankenstein. Adding immeasurably to the actor's performance was one of the most inspired character makeups of all time, designed by the legendary makeup artist Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce certainly conceived it, but Karloff added to it. He added the eyelids that gave the creature a more dead look. He took out a part of his teeth to give it an indenture into his cheek, giving an ad dimension to that, that facial look of the monster. Multiple layers of cheesecloth, putty, and toxic industrial chemicals were used to create the monster's distinctive look. It was a painstaking process that took over four hours to apply and had to be repeated from scratch every day. Boris would have to start the makeup at four in the morning, and Boris never had any breakfast except something horrible to me, which was orange juice with two raw eggs thrown into it. And the combination of a Karloff makeup and raw eggs and orange juice was not attractive. <laughs> the price Karloff paid to bring his character to life was great. Encased in a heavily padded costume weighing 65 pounds, his feet dragging 30-pound weighted boots, the actor undoubtedly worsened a chronic back condition that would soon send him to the hospital for spinal treatment. Although represented in Frankenstein's opening titles by an ambiguous question mark, Boris Karloff had become a superstar. The character actor who had spent a quarter century in obscurity was now so famous that within a year he would be billed using his last name alone, an honor previously reserved for screen immortals like Valentino, Barrymore, and Garbo. The Mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman, you'll know, you'll see, there's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. In 1933, after an absence of nearly 25 years, Boris Karloff returned to his native England to film The Ghoul, the first British horror film of the talking era. It was during this trip that the former Billy Pratt was reunited with three of his surviving brothers. Brothers who had to accept the fact that their black sheep sibling had made good in the world. Returning to Hollywood and in great demand, Boris expanded his range with diverse and memorable portrayals. 
as the religious fanatic in John Ford's The Lost Patrol, and as the anti-Semitic aristocrat in the House of Rothschild. Your bid was received, Mr. Rothschild, but to put it as delicately as possible, it was thrown out, uh, shall we say, on a technicality. You mean in brief, I am a Jew? Likewise in brief, I do. In 1934, Universal Pictures had their two leading horror stars back under contract, and they wasted no time in teaming Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi in a series of now-classic films. You're poisoned. Poisoned? Everyone I touch is poisoned. They die. By now, the press was making much of the fact that Karloff was getting the better end of the screen partnership and that the British-born Boris was more versatile than his thickly-accented Hungarian co-star. Some even speculated that Lugosi resented Karloff's ever-increasing fame and popularity. Their professional relationship, as far as my dad told me, was one of respect for each other. My father did have some remorse about turning down the Frankenstein role, but that was the only uh, competition among them. There was no personal animosity between my dad and Boris Karloff. Ready for the test, Dracula? I'm ready, Frankenstein. And let us begin. <laughs> You understand, Bela, don't you? That the one who wins this little game of chess is to lead the parade at the film star's frolic. Okay, boys. You'll move. Right. In fact, Karloff harbored animosity toward no one and was well known for his many acts of personal generosity. I was working as a reader at Selznick, and he said, you shouldn't be a reader, you should be a writer. And I said, well, one of these days I'll get a typewriter and I'll try. And the next day a typewriter arrived by the front door. Standing in sharp contrast to his horrifying screen roles were the actor's deep convictions on social and political matters. Very liberal, very, very liberal gentleman. He couldn't stand injustice. Because of the pain and suffering he endured while filming Frankenstein, no one was better aware of the often grueling demands being made on his fellow screen performers than Boris Karloff. He became an activist for actors' rights and was a key organizer of the Screen Actors Guild. And at that time, that was a professionally dangerous thing to be involved with. It was, it was a union, and it was not popular with the studios at all. It was literally dangerous. They had to make calls from public telephones, and they had to meet in secret and not leave their cars outside the house of the others. They'd have to park blocks away because it was that dangerous to form a guild at that time. He was a man of, of deep conviction and, and great passions. He was proud of his involvement with it, really proud of it. At home, Boris exemplified the dignity and taste of a cultured English gentleman. He was a passionate, avid reader. His favorite author was Conrad. His real passion was cricket. I mean, he just lived and breathed cricket. In his younger days, he played tennis. He loved gardening. My picture in my mind of Boris always is out watering his roses, wearing what he called me wickies, which are the apparently shorts 
and he used to go out with his wickies and a top hat to water the roses, and it was quite a sight. In 1935, Boris donned the monster's makeup for a second time in The Bride of Frankenstein, one of the rare Hollywood sequels considered superior to its original. Conceived by director James Whale as a sardonic black comedy, studio publicity made much of the fact that in this version, the monster talks. You make man like me? No. Woman. Karloff, however, had serious misgivings about endowing the monster with speech, feeling that it compromised the integrity of his original characterization. Fortunately, audiences didn't agree, and the film went on to become an international sensation. But the tide of the world market was changing. The storm clouds of war gathering over Europe prompted public concern over the effect Hollywood horror films might have on national morale. The powerful British board of film censors threatened an embargo, and nervous Hollywood executives avoided producing the kinds of films in which Boris Karloff excelled. You haven't changed, have you? But I have. Karloff's Hollywood assignments were cut in half for nearly three years. I will not allow that machine to be used for criminal purposes. His parts now tended toward B pictures, usually the bottom half of double bills and kiddie matinees. The monster boom of the early 30s had gone bust. But Boris had known tough times before, and just like Dr. Frankenstein, he knew that nothing stays dead forever. Boris Karloff. The Gentle Monster, a biography channel documentary. We'll return next week on Dime Store Revelations. Tune in and follow the story. And now, for our third installment of the evening, we present The Black Chapel. With the mahogany coffin. It is a quarter of an hour until midnight. Time for us to go to the Black Chapel. We try the evening we come to this remote spot, a place of mystery and terror, where a gaunt hooded figure appears and sits at the keyboard of the ruined old organ, mumbling and gibbering his fantastic tales as his talon hands grip the clutch. Little do they know. Little does anyone know. The fact about the mahogany coffin. The mahogany coffin. Maybe you'll want one like it. Yes. Maybe you'll want your coffin to be just like it. So soft and peaceful. Just the full for a good doubt. The wind? It was just like the night when old Silas Vicker died. 
with only the wind to mourn for him. Many of the town wits had great fun with Fadlet Digger's name. For that was what he did. Dug graves in a little cemetery on the edge of town. Silas was a good grave digger. The walls of the graves he dug were tight, and they never caved in while the funerals were going on. That's why the cemetery people had hired him, and not old Lou Higgins. The other African job. Silas was careful with his grave, but he was even more careful with his bed. Silas had worked in the graveyard so long, he wanted his bed to be more soft and comfortable than those many coffins he helped lower into the ground. So board by board, precisely, he built his bed, using only the finest of mahogany. Yes, heavy mahogany. It cost Silas the wages of many a grave digging just for the wood alone. But it was worth it. And it took Silas a long, long time to make this bed. He measured the boards of the foot and those of the head. They were the same length. He made them across the frame of the bed and then joined them perfectly, completely covering the frame. The sideboards were built up high, so that when he was lying in the bed, he couldn't see out. Oh, now you're beginning to see, aren't you? <laughs> yes. Silas Digger's mahogany bed was to be a coffin. Silas was badly puzzled for a while. How could he fix his bed so that the foot and headboard would close down over him when he died? Then he worked it out. With his dying movement, he would touch a little string, and foot and headboard would close down over him, and he would be in his coffin. But what about a grave big enough to hold the coffin? He must talk to the graveyard people on the morrow. Silas bought two lots side by side in the graveyard, and when he wasn't busy digging other people's graves, he worked carefully on his own. Yes, he was digging his own grave. Finally it was done. And now all there was to do was to die. Yes, die in his own bed, and with his dying movement, turn it into his coffin. When they saw the bed folded over him, they would know. And when they started to dig in his two graveyard lots, they would find everything in readiness. For he had just laid a few thin boards over the open grave and covered them with dirt. But Silas didn't die. No. Not yet. All these years, old Lou Higgins had taken Silas, hated him beyond reason. And all because Silas had gotten a job at the graveyard and the cemetery people had told Lou that he could have the job if Silas ever wanted to quit. Lou decided finally that there was only one way to make Silas give up that job. Silas would have to die. And Lou would see to it that he did. Sleeping continually in the graveyard, old Lou found out that Silas owned two lots and had already dug his own grave. Yes. And it was covered with only a few thin boards and a little dirt. Ah. 
You had an idea. Yeah. Lou had an idea. Mild to be thought about. Silas was lonely. So he made friends with the wind that blew in the graveyard. That's why it mourned for him the night he died. The wind was his friend, and he told his friend about his coffin and his grave. But Silas' figure was getting very old. He was slow in his work. It was long after dark. He was still lifting spade after spade of dirt from a pauper's grave. Hard work. Yes, very hard. And his old bones ached. His skinny legs shivered in the cold and his feet clicked. As he asked his friend the wind about the darkness. Finally, he withdrew. And he slowly started home when he decided he would walk by his own grave. In the darkness, he sang the wind in a playful mood. Blew just a speck of dirt in his already watery eyes. He blinked. He began to tide the wind for its pain. Then he heard old Lou's voice. Silas, over here. Help me. Help me. Silas was startled at that voice. What was Lou doing here in the graveyard? What could be the matter with him? Silas started toward that voice. And before he knew it, he walked out onto his own grave. The thin board gave way, and with a shriek, down he passed. When the cemetery people found him, he was quite dead. And his right hand was stepped out above his head. Reaching. Reaching for something. And there was a horrible look of determination on it. So horrible. The graveyard people turned away. Standing there with them with cold loose with it. Oh, yes, the job was his now. The first thing he had to do was to bury old Silas Peter. When he tried to put Silas into a little cheap pine coffin, he wouldn't fit. His outstretched hand made him too long. So Lou decided to bury Silas by standing him up in the corner of his grave and covering him with dirt. When old Lou was finished, Silas's fingers were just under the top layer of dirt. That night, about two hours after sundown, the wind began to blow. One little whirlpool of wind seemed more fierce than the rest. And it covered a long while over a certain section of the graveyard. But no one knew that it was cleaning away the dirt from Silas Digger's body. No. No one knew but the wind. Oh, Lou Higgins. I come to Silas Digger's house to live. The man at the bed. So beautiful. So soft. So not at all in keeping with any of the other things, eh? He wanted to divide it. The rich mahogany panel. The deep sideboard. And uh, no, he wouldn't roll out of that bed. Then it was getting late when he had work to do tomorrow. He was going to good night. To keep him such a splendid, comfortable bed. Yeah, such a splendid bed. The covers were warm under old old food. Ah, that's warm. 
The wind outside was cold. It sounded angry as it swirled around the corners of the house. Then of a sudden it was quiet. But from a deadness of sound so complete that Lou could feel his own heart beating wildly and his withered breath. Tell I won't hear from opening. I could go to the school here. That's the thing. What was that? Sounded like the front door. There must be a prank of the wind. No. Then it was again. It was the door. But something opened it. You could feel the wind as it surged through. Anxious to get inside. After the wind whirled around the lonely house, it moaned in anger. It heard something. Something on and on. And again the voice of the wind was quiet. coming to his bedroom door. Now no sound at all. The unearthly stillness that he could actually feel. His heart was pounding wild. He choked and felt he couldn't breathe. He couldn't see. He could only wait, wait and listen, his eyes straining out into the darkness. There. There was a sound. The doorknob was turning. Now, now the cat slid back in the lock. The old door squeaked slowly. Then came the wind. It squeezed through the tiny crack and rushed into the room. Oh, Lou could feel it angrily brush across his brain. Now the door burst full wide with the angry wind to get him. And again, there's been that silence. The wind was wind. Oh, Lou Higgins, too, was wind. There was nothing else to do but wait. He went. He was conscious only that his pounding heart was choking back his screams. There it was again. Closer. The revolting scrape. Then the heavy clump. Another scraping sound. Closer now. Then the clump. The old man could see a form in the darkness. Blackest spot in the blackest of the room. Something heavy was trying to climb over the side boards of the bed. There he felt it. It was cold and stiff and very awkward. He could see it now. Ghastly white. He could turn it. One arm above his head. Ah, was the corpse of Silas Digger. He found his voice as Silas fell across. He screamed into the blackness. He screamed again and again as the dead body rolled across him. And then there was only the wind. Beside a deep, long sigh, though it was a final breath released after a job was done. For as the wind rushed out of the room, the head and the foot of the bed slipped. Quietly together, leaving Anna Figure safe in his mahogany coffin. Safe. With company, too. Yes. With company. It is almost midnight. Time for the voice of the Black Chapel to recede into the void from whence it came. 
Each Friday evening at a quarter of an hour before midnight, we come to this remote place, the Black Chapel, and listen to the hooded figure who sits at the keyboard of the ruined old organ, gibbering his fantastic tales as his talon hands grasp a cracked key. Listen next Friday evening for the sinister tale of the strange bequest. This is the Columbia Broadcast. And now, for our fourth and final installment, Time Store Radio Theater's Halloween Spooktacular 2023 presents Quiet, Please. This, the room where the ghosts live. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chapel. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Room Where the Ghosts Live. Quiet, Please is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by... Acme brand Halloween flashlights. While our orange and black plastic molded flashlights with the pumpkin motif is certainly charming enough for any Halloween safety enthusiast, the fact that this baby puts out 3,000 lumens of dark annihilating power will guarantee that your child will always be seen if they use an Acme brand Halloween flashlight, that is. And now, back to Quiet, please. No. No, I won't let you take me out of the house. No, I'm going to stay right here. I'm sorry, Doctor. But, Lawrence, we've got to get you to a hospital. Now, stop being a fool. I won't. I'm going to die anyway, and I don't want to die in an ambulance somewhere out on an icy road between here and town. I'm sorry, that's final. I can't do anything for you here, Lawrence. Maybe I don't want you to do anything for me, Doctor. I'm going to call the ambulance. How? By telephone, of course. The telephone isn't working. Oh, that's right, I forgot. That's funny, isn't it? What? What a couple of days of snow can do. No lights, no heat, no water. Just like the days when they lived here. When who lived here? The ghosts. Open your mouth. What for? The moment. I'm not raving, Doctor. I'm not seeing anything. Feel any pain? Sure. Worse than it was? The little mouthy I won't hurt. Good thing I decided to stop in for a cup of coffee. You might have died here all by yourself. I'm going to die anyway. Not if I can help it. Can't help. Well, stop that nonsense. May I have your bow? Mom. All right, now. That'll relieve the pain in a minute or two. Okay. 
I could take you to the hospital in my car. No. And I think I will. No. Morris, what got into you? What do you want to die for? Take your Morris. No, not yet. There's nothing wrong with you. You've been the happiest. You've got everything to live for. No. Then you go and shoot yourself. Yep. Where did you get this pistol, anyway? Yeah. Didn't you know it was loaded? Sure. That powder and ball have probably been in there for 50 years. Longer than that. What? Longer than that. Well, there's no telling what kind of infection you can get from that bullet. No. No, no, yes. You see that thermometer? High temperature, huh? Hey, I'm just pretty hungry. I guess you're not going to the hospital after all, now. No, I told you that, doctor. I couldn't go over you with that higher temperature. That's fine. But I told you I wasn't going to be moved anyway. So you see... Who gave you this pistol? A British colonel. What British colonel? His name is on the lock plate. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Charles Graves. 17th Regiment of what? 1774. Ancestor of the father gave it to you? No. Give it to me himself. Yesterday. Lawrence, how could he? He's one of the ghosts. I see. No, you don't. I'm not delirious, Doctor. He he really is. No, no. Just relax, Lawrence. Of course. I'm going to die anyway. Isn't that so? I'm afraid it is. Good. Lawrence. What? Why did you do it? Well, I... I'm not sure whether I did it on purpose or not. I... wanted to... But maybe it was an accident. Or maybe... Or maybe what? Maybe one of the ghosts. No, I... I don't think so. I guess it was an accident. I'm glad, though. But why? On account of Melanie. Melanie? Melanie who? Who's Melanie? Melanie and the girl... Who lived here a hundred and seventy years ago? What? And who still lives here? It, it hurts quite a bit, Doctor. You want me to give you some more morphine? I guess not. No. I want to tell you things. Well, you won't believe me, of course. You. I think my mind's wandering. Don't you? Why? What difference does it make? Yeah, that's right. Nothing makes any difference now. A fellow takes a long time dying. That's neat. After a while, we're the time, huh? Pretty soon, I'll be a ghost, too. See, Melanie. Hey, I'd like a little drink of brandy. Well, just a second. You're not taking it easy. Ah, thanks. Good brandy. 
check it. Did come along? It's good. I wish I could do something for you, Lon. Nothing so, dear, not we? Sure. I mustn't leave. I couldn't come back, you know. I have to stay here. I don't understand that. I have to stay here, I said. My house. Who was I talking about? The... The ghost. Oh, yes. So I tried to keep the house like it was in the old days, see, all by myself. Been fun. And then noises. Heard noises. What kind of noises? People beating on door, rattling the latch. Every night. I'm not afraid, Doctor. I know. Not now. I got up all over the house. Noises stopped after a while. It wasn't a dream? No, no dream. Beating on a door someplace. What was... Sounded like it came from right over there. You see? Well, there isn't any door there, Lawrence. That's what I thought. <sighs> Hands are cold. I'll build up the fire. No, no, no. I know what it is. I haven't how much time, huh? Have I? No, I haven't got much time. I have to hurry. Shut your eyes so you can see what I saw. I mean, I didn't see it, see, because it was dark. So, when you shut your eyes, you, you feel the way I felt. Huh? I... All right, Lawrence. I... I walked all over the house, lights on. No sound... No hammering on door. No door. I turn off the lights, it starts again. From right over there. I turn on the lights. No door. No noise. Not I got an idea. I turn off the lights again. I walk over where the sound comes from. And there is a dog. I, I think I hear a woman crying and footsteps and furniture being shoved around. I, I said I wasn't scared, didn't I? Well, I was then. You'd be scared too, finding a door where there isn't any door and, and there's somebody on the other side. But that's the outside wall of the house, Lawrence. No. What? There's a, a room there. The room where the ghost well. You see? No, I don't. I didn't know it, too. You got your eyes shut? Yes. If, if you could hear the noise, like I heard it. Brad found me. People pushing their shoulders against the locked door. And I could smell smoke. You see, I didn't know about the ghosts then. Well, how do you know now? I'm... I'm trying to tell you. I'm sorry. Keep your eyes shut. I want you to feel the way I felt. Couldn't believe. I reach for the lights again. I turn them on. Nothing happens, just nothing. Except pounding on the door. 
floor now. And a woman crying. And I hear her screaming. Most school, she said, it's French, she means help, help. And I heard her voice again, frightened. I really love what she said. That's French too, means open the door. So they tried to open it, and it was locked. And they were pounding. She was coughing. And at last I found the key. I yanked the door open. And the ghost came out. The lights came back on. There wasn't any door. There wasn't anybody in the room but me. And I heard something. Somebody walking across the floor down the hall. And I turned and went down the hall after the footsteps, down, down toward my room. And they stopped dead. Because the door to my room closed and, and somebody locked it. You grinned that? No. It was locked from the inside. So was every other door in the house. Quiet Please is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Halloween Flashlight. These charming-looking flashlights aren't just cute, but are packed full of nostalgia from the fact it takes old-fashioned, easily breakable toxic light bulbs right down to the 16D-sized battery it uses to operate for an evening's work. The nostalgia is so intense when you use our flashlights that we recommend you don't have them turned on for longer than six minutes at a time. Acme brand Halloween flashlights. Exploding with nostalgia. And now, back to Quiet, please. That couldn't be. Try the doors. Open your eyes and try the doors. Go ahead. Lawrence, I... No, no, go ahead. I'll keep on talking. You... You have to believe me. Go ahead. So, what did I do? I lay down here on the Davenport with the lights on. I tried to think, and nothing made any sense. I got up and I tried the outside door. It was un- unlocked. So I went outside. I had some crazy idea. Maybe there was a room there. There wasn't, of course. But there were footprints in the snow. Some men's footprints. And, and... A girl's. This last nose covered them all up again, I guess. Well, what about the doors, Doctor? They're locked. Down the inside. You see? Did you hear anything? Did you? Well, I... I thought I heard someone move here. If I'd awakened somebody... But it was probably my imagination. No, it wasn't. No. Sit down. Oh, I'm getting so tired. Oh, no, 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 Randy. No. So I came back in. I sat down. And I 
I hardly noticed that the lights were off again, and then I heard something else. And I said, Who's that? Then a woman's voice answered me in the dark. I'm Melanie. Well, who's Melanie? Once I was a maid in this house in the time of the war, when the soldiers were captured on Christmas night at Kelty. And they escaped and came here to be hidden by the Siamori. For he was not watching it. They were kept there. I think I'd be surprised when I went on ferry. Fred didn't interrupt her. She went right on telling me how Morris was a loyalist. How he hid the officers. And how the neighbors suspected him. Spied on him. Then the noise must go away, you see. And I was left alone to bring food to the poor soldier. And there was a night when I took their food to them. And when I would go from the room, I found the door to be locked from the other side. But soon we smelled the smoke of the fire. For someone had set fire to the house to destroy the room. And we beat upon the door. But it did not avail us. And so we perished in the fire. I and the British officer. And there was none to know our fate. And for our sins, we are bound forever to this house. Although I do not fall so very greatly. And I would thank you for releasing us from that room. For so many times we have cried out. Yet no one would open the door. And I opened the door, but now all my doors are locked against me. Yes. They say it is their house now. And no man can open the doors again. I think we'll see about that. They say you must go away. Well, I'm not going away. I should be sorry when you go away. You what? You will release this. I am grateful. Thanks. I think they'd be grateful, too. They are soldiers, monsieur. And they have not forgotten the manner of their death. This is their revenge, that no man shall live in this house. Well, that's fine. I'm to be chased out of my house by a bunch of ghosts. It is so, monsieur. How do you feel about it? All right. I could wish you could always be here, monsieur. So? Yes, monsieur. But it cannot be. Unless. Unless what? It cannot be. If I turned on the lights, could I see you? No, monsieur. The eyes of the living cannot see us. What did you look like? I... I did have blue eyes, monsieur. And my hair was black. And I was not very tall. And my feet were very small. And your uh, clothes? Once I had a gown of taffeta, and it was blue, like my eyes, I remember. And there was a cap of lace for my grandmother, but me. And, and I was struck with a sudden impulse to see this girl, with the black hair and the taffeta dress that matched her eyes. And I jumped up and snapped the lights on, and the room was empty. And so. I knew I'd been dreaming. Oh, cool. But I wasn't dreaming, my friend. 
She came to me the next night. And the next. Uh, oh, it's so cold. And I die now. Uh, is this what it feels like? Yeah, take a little sip of this. Oh. Well, that hurt? Too much longer. Well, see, friend, I found myself in love with the coast. Yes, Melanie. And she loves me, Doctor. And we talked about it so much. There must be a way out. But there couldn't be a way out. And the others kept telling her I was go on and I asked you to go to them. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go to them and beg them to let me stay. It was the only way. But she told me they said no. They, they made a pact between themselves and they did not alter it. And the time was getting short. They were sorry they sent, but and then, last night, she came to me again. When the snow was piling deeper and deeper around the windows, and they said, Melanie, I, I can't go now. Can't they see that? And she said, I have spoken again with the colonel. Then what did he say? He will come to you, he said. And what? He will not speak to the living but what good? I don't know. He said he will come to you. When? Tonight. I'll speak. Hey, Monsieur Le Colonel. I have the honor to present Monsieur the Lieutenant Colonel Robert Charles Graves. Of His Majesty's 17th Regiment of Foot. Monsieur the Colonel wishes me to present his compliments to you and to say to you that he has taken counsel with his fellow officers. No, do not speak. Monsieur the Colonel wishes me also to say that he and his fellow officers have come to a decision in the matter of yourself. They honor you for your devotion to me, and they beg leave to supply you with the means of assuring you permanent residence in this house. This year, the colonel begs you to accept as a token of his esteem. Black friend. Personal gift from 
Robert Charles Graves, 17th foot. Well, I thought a long time. Turn off the lights. Call her. No answer. Talk to her. Told her I loved her. Wasn't brave enough to. Said I loved her. Couldn't do it. Tried. No. No, I. I didn't do it. No, I didn't. Long toward. Long toward morning, heard footsteps again. Boots, sword, spurs clicking. Knew who it was. Said, hello, Colonel. Said, Colonel, thanks, only haven't got courage enough. Always love her, Colonel, I said. Said, here's your pistol. I'm a coward. Considered hazardous in Nevada and Florida. Still outlawed in Oregon and Europe. Acme brand Halloween flashlights. Red hot burning balls of nostalgia. Should be looked at immediately by a physician. And now, let's return to the thrilling conclusion of Quiet. And listen to Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper. Lawrence, the man who spoke to you, was Ernest Chappell. And Melanie was Claudia Morgan. The doctor was played by James Van Dyke. Our sound effects by Albert April. Music for Quiet, Please, except for our theme, which is from the Allegretto Movement of the Cesar Franck Symphony in D minor, is composed and played by Albert Berman. You have been listening to Dime Store Radio Theater's Halloween Spooktacular 2023 on Shinos Jungle Room. Brought to you by Mid Valley Mutations. We hope to see you again next week. But until then, be seeing you. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.